It's good to see each and every one of you here today, and it's always a delight in having my grandkids with me. So uh, it's been a joyful weekend. Uh, they kept us busy, and especially my wife. So we're thankful for that. Uh, you, want, you want to go to Children's Church? Yeah, just follow them. Okay. Happy birthday. The guy, I tell you what, man, 60, what now? 63. You're almost as old as me. My goodness. <laughs> yeah. No, you won't. No, you won't. Okay, I want you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 20 as we continue our study on this beautiful, wonderful Labor Day weekend. Matthew chapter 20. We've been looking at the theme greatness and how it differs from that that the Lord has for the kingdom of God. So the disciples are with him, and he's been illustrating this to him, and he's told them exactly what he's going to be doing, which is the ultimate, the ultimate illustration of greatness. And so as we come to Matthew chapter 20, we move on down right after he tells them that he's going to Jerusalem, he's going to suffer, he's going to die, by whose hand it will be, the Sanhedrin and, and uh, the Romans will execute him, and so in turn uh, he'll uh, be buried and raised again. So now in verse 20, they, this is, that was the third time he was very direct in t letting the disciples know what it meant for him to come here, his purpose, his goal as the Messiah. Because why? Because they had mistaken it, hadn't they? They, had, they were looking at it as though he's going to be riding in on a white horse, so to speak, uh, you know, with his army, and he's going to take over and defeat Rome, and they're going to rule and reign with him. But that's not what the millennial and the uh, future kingdom is all about, is it? And so he says, this is not what the kingdom of God is about. Uh, this is what it's about. I've come to suffer and die and be buried and be raised again. In other words, he came to humble himself. He stepped out of heaven as the Son of God, came here and, uh, you know, poured all that deity in the flesh and uh, humbled himself as a man and walked here on earth and suffered and died in our place, was buried and then raised again. That's the ultimate, the ultimate illustration of greatness and so as we look at this they still didn't get it because in verse 20 it says then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came to him with her sons bowing down and making a request of him and he said to her what do you wish she said to him 
command that in your kingdom, and this is very important because here she's recognizing that he's Messiah, right? In his kingdom. Command in your kingdom these two sons of mine, John and James, that they may sit one on your right and one on your left. Jesus says, okay, we're going to ride in on our horses and defeat Rome. No. Jesus answered and said, you don't know what you're asking for. You ever ask for something, especially as a child, and your parents say, do you understand what you're asking for? Do you understand what that involves? This is what he's saying here. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink? Well, that sounds simple enough, drinking the cup. We'll explain that in a moment. And they said to him, we're able. We've got two hands. We can drink. No. And he said to them, my cup you shall drink. But to sit on my right and on my left, this is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. In other words, that's already been prepared. But there's more involved in that statement than just, okay, the Father ahead of time has prepared this. And hearing this, the ten became indignant with the two brothers. In other words, the other ten, they heard this. They didn't like it. I dare them ask and have their mother ask for a special place. Not only they to ask, but to go as far as have their, putting their mother up to it. But Jesus called them to himself and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. In other words, he's illustrating again. I want to show you the greatness. I want to tell you the difference here. Rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and they're... Great men exercise authority over them. Okay, what do they do? They have their kings, you know, they exercise that authority. Is he against that? Well, we'll talk about that in a few moments. He said, it's not so among you, but whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Let's pray. Father, we just ask for your grace and its sufficiency to be in control of this service in our lives. I dare not try to say that I can open up anyone's eyes to the truth persuade them, manipulate them maybe, but not open their eyes up to the truth. God, I ask that you do that. And I ask that you deal with our hearts and our lives in a very special way at this time, as only you can. May your grace and its sufficiency be at work in us, among us, through us, and may we leave this place rejoicing because we've allowed your grace to do its work. For I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, pride, you all know what pride is. Thinking more of yourself than you really should. Looking at yourself the wrong way. And high self-esteem have come to be redefined not only as virtues in our society today, 
but as supreme virtues. You've got to feel good about yourself. And it doesn't matter how you do that, make sure you feel good about yourself. You can do anything you set your mind to do. It's reminiscent of the time in history when at the height of the ancient Greek and Roman empires existed along with that existence. Pride was exalted and guess what was belittled? Humility. Unfortunately, no society, and I say this again, and, and you think about here in our life, here in, our, in America, especially where we are the, uh, the country of the free and we have everything that, that we want just about at our hands, you think about this statement here and our situation today in our culture. Unfortunately, no society, no society can survive the self-destructiveness of pride run rampant. No society. Greek, Rome, all of those failed. Every society, and the reason for this, every society depends for its preservation and success on the mutual support and supportiveness and harmonious relationships of its people, among its people. We've got to work together because what happens when we don't? We divide. We don't unite, and when you divide, what happens? You're usually conquered. You usually fall apart. When a number of them become, when a number of people become committed only to themselves, listen very carefully, only to themselves and to their own interests, it's all about me and what I want, with little regards for their families, for their friends, for their neighbors, for their communities, their fellow citizens, what happens? Society disintegrates. And self, of course, becomes stronger. But in, with the cost of that, relationships, and hear me out, become weaker. Relationships become weaker. Why do you think Satan wants so much division and has always wanted division? Why do you want him to think that we can stand on our own and be an island to ourselves and exist apart from others? Because we will disintegrate. We will be defeated as individuals. As self-rights become supreme, the interpersonal bonds that hold society together become severed. And this is what this picture is about. Jesus is trying to teach the disciples this very truth. Here the mother of the sons of Zebedee came to Jesus with her sons. She was bowing down before him, recognizing, acknowledging, I believe, his rule on his throne and his kingdom as a Messiah. 
But the problem was that the disciples nor her had quite understood and accepted his mission yet. His goal yet. His purpose yet. All they heard, it seems like, is we're going to Jerusalem. Now, what did Jerusalem mean? Passover, celebration. Man, this is the time. This is where the kingdom is near. We're going to see it. He's going to rule and reign. That's what they heard. Don't we hear what we want to hear most of the time? If we're careful, if we're not careful, then that's all we do hear, and we don't hear what we should hear. So they were probably thinking, if the kingdom is coming, and it's coming soon, man, we're heading towards Jerusalem, then who's going to be preeminent in it? Why? There's a throne over there. Mom, put in a good word for me. Say James is on the right and John on the left. I don't care. Either place will be fine. Jesus, though, is letting them know of the connection, though, between his suffering, his purpose to come, and also his followers. You will also suffer. It's not what you're, going, you're thinking about. So Jesus answered and said, you do not know what you're asking for. Are you able to drink the cup that I am about to drink? And look at their answer. They said to him, hey man, we're ready. He said to them, my cup you shall drink. But to sit on my right and on my left, this is not mine to give. But it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my father. It also shows us that the disciples definitely had not heard and learned Jesus' lessons regarding greatness and humility in his kingdom. They just hadn't picked it up yet. So they heard pretty much what they wanted. The event provided, of course, more opportunity for Jesus to try and prepare them before the cross. So he expounded on the need of humility and sacrificial servanthood of the kingdom. And following the, the teaching opportunity, Jesus would illustrate in the passage following the, the servanthood in its true humility by healing the two blind men in verses 29 through 34. So notice the change here. In the passage, it says, Who can whose sons are they? Well, it started out by mentioning that these were the sons of Zebedee, but when she came forth, it was her sons. Isn't that just like a wonderful mother? These sons of mine. I want a special place if you've got a special place for them. I'd love for them to be sitting on the right and left. But before we really say anything about her selfishness, we need to understand that we as parents do so also today. I mean, all you've got to do, if you're going to have a baseball team in the little leagues, 
and you need a pitcher, I guarantee you the coach will have a son. If you're going to have a quarterback in the little leagues, the coach is going to have a son. I mean, we're going to take care of our kids, aren't we? And that's exactly what she was doing. But it was out of selfishness. And so there's two contexts that we need to understand before we go any further. And one is the reigning and regency here that's mentioned. In the traditional monarchy, in that pattern, there was a family with rulers. In other words, there was rulers sitting with the father or whomever it was beside him. And those were his children usually. There was the distribution of power. Now, and, and you'll see in the monarch sitting in the center would be the father usually. And on his right or left, there would be those who would be reigning with him, which would be his children. And usually on his right, the oldest son. And on his left, the next. But there are also those who are with him on his throne that, were kin to him probably in the other thrones that might be out there. So the picture Jesus had previously given to the disciples was one throne in the center. You remember that? Jesus already told them that they would be sitting with him on their thrones. The 12 thrones, thrones over Israel and the 12 tribes. And so in turn, he told them that. But he did not mention who would be sitting where. He just said, You know, he would be the monarch. He would be the Messiah. He would be the one that would be the ruler and reigner, and they would reign with him. And they would sit up on, sit on those six thrones, one on each, and I mean, six on one side and six on the other. But there is another context that's very important here, and this context is not just dealing with the reigning and regency here, but it's dealing with the dining and hospitality. This is where the host, right and left, usually had his most privileged guest to sit. They were close in position on his left side and on his right side because they were places of honor. These places of reigning were indications of privilege and power. And such proximity to the king suggests a a sharing of his prerogatives and his influence. So they wanted to be in that. Now there is very little reason to interpret this request in any other way other than being selfish. So this is a request that was very pictorial. Just look at it once again. request says, when you come into your kingdom, command that these two sons of mine sit, one on your right and one on your left. And basically what she was saying was, you can have the other disciples sit where they want to. But I want mine on the right and left, next to the Messiah. And so Jesus responds, and he responds with a pretty strong statement. Do you not know what you're asking? 
And this is so important to understand in the context. Jesus had spoken in chapter 19 concerning the disciples sitting on the 12 thrones reigning with him. And between that time and now, two things had happened. He had also reiterated what uh, being in the kingdom meant. He taught them the the, uh, parable of the laborers in the vineyard and the rewards there. And also, uh, he said, the first shall be last and the last shall be first. And then Jesus has taught that he must go to Jerusalem. And he says, man, I'm going to look like I'm going to be the last. I'm going to be serving everybody. But God would raise him up, God the Father, and he would be glorified once again in the sense of being put back in his position where he would be ruling and reigning. So this makes the question all the more grotesque, really, if you look at it and scandalous. This, the way this question is recounted in the Gospels is uh, we realize that she wasn't alone. The disciples were with her. In other words, how many of you are old enough to remember Where the Boys Are? You remember that movie? Where the Boys Are, you know, and they went to Florida for a, uh, you know, a spring break or whatever, and Connie, I think Francis sang the song, boy, beautiful song, you know. Well, this is where the boys are with the mother. So Jesus says to the mother and boys, you do not know what you're asking. In essence, he says, did you not hear what I just said? That's basically what he's saying. I'm going to Jerusalem to to be delivered. Is that what you want? I mean, do you understand what's going to happen? I just told you what's going to happen. Do you know what you are asking? That your sons be on on my right and on my left as I hang on the cross? Wow. Now, we know that two hung on the cross with Jesus, two thieves. It wasn't the disciples. So we ask him, are you ready to drink the cup that I'm about to drink? And the cup from the the Old Testament speaks of the wrath of God poured out against sin. And so, uh, do you know what you're asking? God's wrath is about to be poured out on sin. And he's basically telling them that they don't understand what they are asking asking they don't understand what's about to happen asking for these uh, those places was asking for the most bitter cup of suffering the cup is a symbol of taking what is served to you in life are you ready to take what is uh, the what is given to you in life what it what is issued out before you what God has allowed for you if you decide to follow me For Jesus, the cup was humiliating and painful suffering in the hands of his enemies and ultimately death. Did James and John think that they were able to share this experience with Jesus? They just didn't understand. And when Jesus addressed James and John asking them, are you able to drink this cup? They certainly did not understand because they said, yes, we're able. Now it was a rhetorical question. And an actual question. Rhetorical question, we know that no one is able to bear the wrath of God poured out on human for sin except Jesus. But in actuality, as far as the reply to the question Jesus asked them, they show that 
the disciples did not hear nor understand what Jesus was saying. They actually did not hear that. And so in verse 23, Jesus responds, My cup you shall drink, but to sit on my right hand or on my left, this is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. In other words, my cup you shall drink. Well, to follow Christ is to follow one who was rejected by men, and they would be rejected by most men. The one who was mocked and scourged, and they would even suffer for Christ. The one who was crucified. Some would die for him. And so to drink from his cup in this sense is to identify with him in his death, burial, and resurrection. It is to bear the scandal of the cross. Not in the sense of atonement suffering. No one can satisfy the wrath of God except Jesus. But identifying with him was identifying with the will of God. To do the will of God. To follow through with the will of God. To go the, uh, the way. James became the first martyr in the New Testament mentioned. And John was exiled to the Isle of Patmos for the sake of Christ. It was their obedience and willingness to follow the will of God no matter what was identified with them. How they identified them with Christ. So to sit on Jesus' right and on his left, Jesus says, that's not for me to determine. That is for the Father to give. Now what is he saying? He's saying, Father has already planned that out. I am not concerned about these things. And if I'm not concerned about such things, neither should you be concerned about them. Serve God faithfully. Don't do it to get some kind of prize for yourself or, or something, and that be your goal, or something uh, like sitting on a throne or, or ruling. Boy, I want that position. He says, do it. Because you love the Lord and what he's done for you. We know that the other ten disciples are there because they are in, indignant. They have heard the, what has gone on, the request by John and James and his mother. And that was, they were painfully indignant to it. So this is the kind of indignation that will swell up inside and soon find its way out in anger. Jesus takes the opportunity to illustrate by way of another illustration, dominant dictatorship. When the disciples reveal their feelings about the request, what does Jesus do? He calls them to himself and he says, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. It is not so among you. The, the ten disciples reacted with indignation to the ambitious power play of the two sons, James and John. So Jesus reminds them of the characteristics of Gentile government. In the unbelieving world, it is assumed that power and authority define greatness. Not so in the kingdom. Jesus is reminding the disciples that the way of the Gentiles the unbelieving world demonstrates their greatness by lording it over you, by exercising their authority over you. They think that makes them big. That's their, 
that's their idea, you know, to get there. But I want to say a word of caution here. Jesus is not uh, criticizing authority or hierarchy. Not the structures there, because we see that all throughout. We know that's there. He even uh, placed places of authority and rule there. But it's how you exercise it, how you carry it out. If you're strutting it, then it's wrong. Such behavior is born out of insecurity and pride when you do that. The person who bosses others around is trying to prove himself as being great. And he's not. Let's look at the President of the United States. What does he do when he comes in office? He selects his own staff, doesn't he? And if you visit the White House, just look and see where the offices are there in proximity to the president. That will show you more than likely who has the power and who doesn't. Same is true in the building where the offices are, that where the House and the Senate is. You can tell who has seniority. Those with seniority have the big offices with the windows overlooking the mall and the Capitol building. They also probably have a shorter walk to the Capitol. They have the, the grand and glorious entryways. You really don't have to even go to Washington to see this. You can go into any small courthouse, can't you? And pretty much so, that's the way it's arranged. Go into biz buildings, housing businesses. You can find the powerful and where they're located. You can find out pretty quick how the hierarchy works, whether in America or in some other country. It's basically the same, even with tribes. And the, you know, the, the head of the tribe and the family that is uh, to, to rule and reign where they're located in that tribe, tribal area. I mean, it's everywhere. You can, find, you can find it in any country. They're amazingly similar. In a fallen world, hierarchies are amazingly alike because we operate that way. And we operate with fallen motives unless we're born again. He's telling the disciples, you know, yes, there's going to be these places out there, but you don't go at it to build up yourself and promote yourself and for that priority in your life to be number one or be next to number one. I mean, like I said earlier, we can find it in children's sports. Many times it's the parents, and may I say, the ones who are most involved with the kids, making sure their, son, their sons and their daughters play. And they have a key role. Just like James and John's mom wanting her sons to, be, to sit on the thrones next to Jesus. Now, how do people in our society get to those positions of authority? Well, one way is by manipulation. You manipulate your way up, whatever you have to do. Another is because of the work you do. You work very hard. With some, it's because of the medals on your chest in certain uh, areas. And then there are those who, because of their 
track record. They have built-in business positions and importance coming from that. They are placing those positions. Many get to the place of power because of the sale they did basically on themselves. You try to sell yourself. In some countries, especially European countries, you're there because of family. You've inherited it. The Western world, though, believes their way of getting into power is the best way. Anyone can become president, they tell us. But is that really true? God can do anything, but as far as with man's concern, is it really true? What do they usually look at? Somebody with a name, don't they? Or somebody with money or somebody that's gone to the right schools. Most of the time. So, as we look at this, we see that in America, anyone can become president, we believe. And so, no matter whether that's all true or not, we believe it sounds better than Europe, where a lot of them are through family. And nobody can get there except by family. So, humanly speaking, the Western world in its way, it really seems better, doesn't it? But that's not the way of the kingdom, though. Even in America, and its way maybe being better than Europe, we're still like the laborers in the, in the parable. Hard work is a way to success, and success should be met with economic reward. Economic reward should be commensurated by the work given. It works fine in business, and it works fine in politics, and it works fine sometimes in sports. But humanly speaking, the question that the mother of James and John asked was perfectly in order, but it was out of order, really. We're not talking about human ways. We're talking about the ways of God. This is why Jesus tells the disciples, not so with you. In other words, kingdom people are not to be that way. In other words, we're, we're not to try and do it for ourselves. When we're serving God, who are we serving? Ourselves. Sometimes we are. And we claim that we're serving God. Our motives, sometimes it's just purely for us. And it's not for God. But that's what it should be. Jesus came to fulfill God's will didn't he the father's will and so kingdom people are not to be that way why dabble in the puny efforts uh, at worldly greatness when you have a faulty foundation there and you can be focusing in on the kingdom seek ye first the kingdom of god and his righteousness, and then all these things shall be added unto you. Let God take care of it. In the kingdom of God, all the rules are off. All the rules have changed. Nothing is left to the political calculations of a fallen humanity. Nothing is left to the pride and the arrogance of sinful behavior. Sinful humans. Everything in the kingdom of God is established by undiluted, undiminished 
power of God, authority of God, reign of God. When we get there, we're going to be shocked by what we see. I think that many people are going to be getting rewards. Wow. And others not getting rewards. Hmm. And we thought differently because we measured them and compared them with this world. The last, he says, is first. The first is last. And this brings to mind Jesus' previous teaching in uh, the other passages in 18 and 19. Jesus had previously compared the humility of a true follower to a child. Here he compared uh, such humility to that of a servant and a slave. This is basically saying the same thing as the first shall be last and the last shall be first. But here Jesus' words are more graphic. The person who truly is great by heaven's definition is one who chooses the attitude of submission to others in the family of God. Another word of caution. Not everything another believer might ask of us is for the good of all. We're to serve the genuine good of other believers. Not simply do what they want us to do. This means that the truly great believer will sometimes encounter misunderstandings from others and disappointment and even anger from those who get mad at us because we don't do that, because we know what is good for them. We're trying to please the Lord. Our hearts are so self-deceptive that they must always remain open to an examination by the loving scrutiny of the Lord. We're accountable to brothers and sisters whose discernment we trust and that are true. True humility is the base on a healthy self-image. One who is at peace with his own true worth in God's eyes. In other words, we see who we are. This is what God wants us to be, and we remain that. Jesus said, I did not come to serve. Hebrews tells us that Jesus came the first time with reference to sin, but when he comes again the second time, it will be reference to judgment, to rule and reign. This time, though, he came to serve, to give a life of ransom for many. He had every right to be served, But he did not demand it, nor expect it. So he came to give a ransom, a substitute for many. Christ is our perfect example of servanthood. To be great in the kingdom, we're to measure our service to Christ's standards, not ours. Not somebody else. We would always find somebody worse off than us, we think. But with Christ, he went further than just service. If it had just stopped there, then he would have just been like other preachers and prophets. He paid a ransom for our debt as a sinner. A debt that we could not pay. He satisfied the divine justice and holiness of his heavenly father. To give his life a ransom for many meant that Christ died bearing the penalty for us all. 
all men are savable, but not all men will be saved, will they? Some will refuse God's grace. Christ's life was paid out to ransom, to buy the freedom of many, letting us know not everyone will accept the ransom Christ provided. And that's unfortunate. The ten, they were indignant. And we would have been too if we'd been there. Why? Because of our selfish nature. Oh, we may have been spiritual in the sense of saying, I dare them. I wouldn't have said anything like that. But yeah, we would have. The two spoke hastily. And so do we so often, don't we? We speak before we think. The mother in the picture, she's of the quintessential mother, the mother who wanted to take care of her sons at no cost. And she really didn't realize or didn't think about what she was saying either in doing it. Her priorities were not kingdom priorities. But this is going on today so often. We're teaching our children that. Where have we left and when did we leave the course of saying, you give your best. I'm just expecting your best. God's expecting you to give your best. Now, you may not be the athlete that that person is, or you may not be the, in the position that that person is, but you just give your best. You try to please God. And you'll please yourself because you'll know that when you left, you gave it your best. Now, they may get glory for it. They may get honor for it. They may get recognized for it. And you may not. But you gave it your best. And God is watching. And that's who you want to please. Not halfway. Give it your best. And you teach your child, sometimes you fail. Sometimes you make mistakes. That's part of life. You get back up. Nobody's perfect, and that person who is judging you is not perfect. So you just pray for that person, and you give it your best. And you love them anyway. You may not like what they're saying and doing, and it may be wrong, but you love them anyway. It may hurt, but you love them anyway. You see, servanthood will result in the reward of priority of kingdom. You just serve the Lord. And there will be priority of kingdom in your life. That's who you want to please. Same for adults. But we, we've left that. We think our child has to be number one. We think we have to be number one no matter what. And no matter what cost is involved. If it's manipulation. If it's lying. If it's doing our best. If it's make belittling others to get ahead, we do it. Jesus says that's not the kingdom way. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Father, 
it is not easy to live the kingdom way. Matter of fact, it's impossible. But you made it possible by coming and dying for our sins and being raised again so that we could be forgiven, but not just forgiven and brought into your family, but also to be empowered by your spirit and to have your grace. That makes it possible. Will we make mistakes? Yes. But you'll be there to help us up if we'll let you. Thank you, God, for this. Help us always be determined not to be people pleasers, but to be God pleasers. Let our self-esteem be in you, in pleasing you, honoring you, knowing that we have done what you want us to do. No matter what somebody else may think. And God, help us not be prideful, but help us be humble before you. That allowing you and your spirit to work through us and, and to be able to get the job done that you want to be done for your kingdom. Help us to do that as parents, as children, as adults. In Jesus' name, amen.